funny Tom shared that about how they stuck the post-it notes. Uh, Christina's uh, grandparents have passed, and, and they sort of moved into the modern era, so they put pictures of everything that, that the siblings didn't take, this is for the grandchildren, on Facebook, and if you wanted anything, you'd put your, put your request in on Facebook, and then they drew names. And so we got some shawls, and we got some bells, and we got some cool stuff from, from Grandma, and so that's great. So, so we inherit uh, from those that have gone before us. One of the first uh, missionary biographies I ever read was that of a man named William Carey. Carey, uh, who took the gospel to India in the late 18th century, is known really as the father of modern Protestant missions. He gave 40 years of his life in India, never going on a, a furlough, a home assignment. You know, a lot of times missionaries come and visit. Carey never, never did that. And the thing that stands out, the thing that stood out to me in his biography and just thinking about his life, was his perseverance in face of hardship. He buried two of his four young children before his second year in India. His relationship with his wife was one filled with difficulty and pain. Many of the churches that had promised to support him in his ministry failed to follow through. So Kerry, along with his missionary work, worked uh, worked also in an indigo factory in India to, to sustain his family. He learned Bengali and Sanskrit to translate the scriptures and to share the gospel. But it, but it took seven years before his first convert came to Christ. Also, in his early translations of the Bible, uh, his early translations of the Bible were destroyed in a fire. And those are just some of the highlights or, or lowlights of Carrie's life. So how did he persevere? How did he continue on for these 40 years? Well, I believe Carrie had something that we often lack, and that's godly biblical perspective. What I mean, what I mean by that is he understood the big picture according to God's Word. He knew who he was, he knew who God was, and he knew the purpose for his life. He also knew where his ultimate future his ultimate hope rested. This is seen in one of his famous quotes. Carey said, The future is as bright as the promises of God. In the midst of difficulty and pain and suffering, Carey in faith looked to God and looked to God's promises. And this gave him joy and hope and security. The promises of God were key in William Carey's life, as they should be in ours. And today we're, we're going to look at one of God's incredible uh, future promises. A promise made to Abraham and his uh, offspring, his children. And it's my prayer that as we look at, at, at this promise, we will, like William Carey, gain godly and biblical perspective. That even when life is hard, we'll persevere knowing that the, the bright future for those who live in faith to God and His promises. And so, so today we again come to the book of Romans. Paul's arguing for the gospel that he preaches. He's showing that justification, being counted righteous, being saved, comes by God's grace through faith, apart from works. And in Romans 4, he does this by focusing on the example of, uh, of one man, 
Abraham. Why Abraham? Because Abraham was the patriarch, the father of the Jewish people. He's their example. He's the example of one who's righteous before God. Abraham, they believed, was, was right before God. But the Jews in Paul's day misunderstood Abraham's path to righteousness. How he became righteous. They believed that Abraham gained righteousness through his works. So in Romans chapter 4, 1-5, through we looked at that a couple weeks ago, Paul showed that Abraham was justified, counted righteous by faith, not works. He quotes Genesis 15, 16 that says, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith in God's promises. The Jews also believed that Abraham gained righteousness through, through ceremony, specifically through circumcision. So in Romans 4, 9-12, through 12, what we looked at last week, Paul showed that even though circumcision has value in its proper place, that Abraham was justified by faith 14 years before he was circumcised. Circum, uh, justification precedes circumcision. Now the final thing the Jews believed about Abraham's righteousness was that it was gained through his obedience to the law. And that's what Paul's going to refute in our passage for today in Romans chapter 4, 13 through 16. He does this by looking at the relationship between faith, between law, keeping the law, and between God's promises given to Abraham. So this morning I want us to accomplish three things. First, to see again uh, in Abraham's life how it demonstrates that justification has always been, will always be, by God's grace through faith apart from works. We're still hammering that point home. But second, I want us to examine this promise that God gave to Abraham over 4,000 years ago. And finally, to bring those two together, I want us to understand what this 4,000-year-old promise means to those who today are justified by faith. I want us to know, like Carey, William Carey, the future is bright. The future is as bright as the promises of God. So let's begin by analyzing the promise. Let's look at this promise. At the beginning of Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, uh, for, the, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Let's stop there for a second. The promise is that he would be heir of the world. And this promise is not just for Abraham, but also for his offspring. The pro- to Abraham and his offspring, his descendants, literally his seed. In Romans 4.16, Paul makes this really clear. He says, the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. We'll look at that a little more closely later. And we'll look at what, who these offspring are. But first, let's examine the promise. What does it mean? What does it mean to be an heir of the world? Now, an heir is one who receives an inheritance. Talked a little bit about that this morning. You sometimes hear in the news, a person described as an heir to some well-known fortune. He's an heir to the, to the Sony fortune or to the, uh, to the Microsoft fortune. You always, now usually an heir is a descendant, an offspring of the person who built up the fortune, right? Or a person who inherited it from the person before. It usually passes down from parent 
to children and so on. My brother and I are heirs to the vast wool's fortune. That, that was funny, huh? If you know my parents, that was really funny. Now, in the case of the promise given to Abraham and his offspring, the inheritance passes not from Abraham's parents, not from his father, Terah, but from God himself. God is the parent, the father of Abraham and his offspring. And therefore, the fortune is quite a bit larger than the one I or or anyone in in any uh, line will inherit from their parents. The fortune, Paul says, is the world. Now, oftentimes that word world is used in a negative sense. This is not the negative sense. And we'll look at more about what it means. But but that word in the Greek is is, is cosmos, where we get our word cosmos. And it means the world, the earth, or even the universe. It can mean, and we'll come to see, it means sort of all things. So basically, the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that God will give them everything. I'll give you the world. I don't know if you've seen the movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. That scene where George Bailey says to, what's his wife's name? Mary, I'll lasso the moon for you, Mary. You know, that's kind of the, I'll give you the moon. Well, God says, I'm going to give you the world. Now, what's interesting about this promise at least I find it interesting, is you can't really find it anywhere in the Old Testament. God didn't say these words to Abraham. However, throughout the book of Genesis, where Abraham's story is, if you were with us a couple years ago, we studied the life of Abraham, and we saw that God makes a number of promises to Abraham and his descendants. With the Abrahamic covenant, we called it. We don't have time to read all of them. but They're found in Genesis chapters 12, 15, 17, and 22. It begins in 12, and then they're re-added to, reconfirmed in these other chapters. I've included the, the references in your notes if you want to look them up. But let me, let me just summarize. In these passages, God promises, so God comes to Abraham, and he picks him, and it doesn't say why he picks Abraham, it's just this guy Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you a land, the promised land. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to curse your enemies. And through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was a global promise to Abraham. It wasn't just for Abraham and what will become the Jewish people, but it was a global promise. All the families of the earth will be blessed. God also promises that Abraham's offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. That Abraham would be the father of not just one nation, but a multitude of nations. That kings would come from Abraham. God promises that that these promises, this covenant would be everlasting. That God would always be the God of Abraham. Always be the God of his descendants. And that Abraham's offspring would, would defeat all of their enemies. They would be victorious over their enemies. So those are the promises God made to Abraham. And and it seems that Paul summarizes them in this one single promise that he, Abraham, and his offspring would be heirs of the world. 
that the ultimate future fulfillment of these multiple peoples and nations and kings and blessings is that this world, this universe, will one day be given by God to Abraham and his children. So that's the promise. That's the inheritance. That's the bright future that we are to see. And that should give us perspective, right? We'll talk more about that promise and what it means for us right now and what it mean, will mean for us in the future. But first, we need to come to Paul's main point. What's, what's he saying? Why is he talking about this promise? He's showing that through the life of Abraham that justification is by God's grace through faith apart from works of the law. So after he states the promise that Abraham and his offspring will be heirs of the world, he then looks at how this promise is received. This is the key part of his argument here. How do you get that promise? That's our second point, point, appropriating the promise. How do you become an heir of the world? How do you get all things, really? Remember, the Jews believed that Abraham was made righteous and therefore worthy of appropriating the promise of God through works of the law, through obedience to the law. But Paul says, appropriating the promise is not through the law. Again, back to Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be an heir of the world did not come through the law. The promise was not given as a condition of obedience to the law. God didn't say, Abraham, I'm making you this promise and I'm giving you the law. And if you obey the law, then I'll fulfill the promise. This is not what happened at all. And this becomes clear in two ways. First, if you, if you in your notes go back, or if you've read before through Genesis, these promises given to Abraham in the book of Genesis, you'll see that they are unconditional promises. There's a big difference between a conditional promise and an unconditional promise, right? Like I could say to you, I promise that this sermon will be less than one hour. Is that exciting? Well, yay, okay. Unconditionally. Or I could say, I promise that this sermon will be less than one hour if everybody sits up, pays attention, eyes forward. See the difference? No if. No condition in the unconditional promise. And there are no conditions in the promise God made to Abraham. God just promised. Again, like in Genesis chapter 12, he just, all of a sudden, uh, God just comes to Abraham and starts promising him things. He commands him to go, but he says, and, and these are your promises. He never says, Abraham, I'm promising you these blessings uh, if you obey the law. So first, the promise is not given through the law because it doesn't include any conditions of obedience to the law. And second, the promise or promises, the promise is not conditioned upon the law because it was given before the law. Remember last week, the whole argument about circumcision, uh, uh, justification preceding circumcision by 14 years. Abraham was uh, justified, counted righteous, saved 14 years before he was circumcised. So Circumcision could have nothing to do with his salvation. Well, this is even bigger. The promise given to Abraham are recorded in the book of Genesis. But the law was given in the book of Exodus. Abraham did not receive the law. Moses did. In fact, the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul makes this very point. 
He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promises void. The promise void. The law came 430 years after the promise. So this does not make the promise. The law didn't make the promise null or void. Therefore, appropriating the promise cannot be through the law. And that should settle the argument, but Paul continues. He wants it to be very clear. Verse 14, For if the adherents, the adherents, those who obey, those who have and obey the law, if they, those are who, to, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. If it's true, as the Jews were teaching, that the heirs of the promise are those who keep the law, the children of Abraham are those who keep the law, then what's the purpose of faith? Faith is null. It's empty. It's meaningless. It has no effect. Because faith and works are, up, are, are opposites of one another. Faith means trusting in God's work and not relying on yourself in any way. I'm trusting in God for this. Law means trusting in your ability to obey the law and therefore please God, cause God to do what you want Him to do for you. So if the heirs are those who keep the law, then faith isn't needed. Just keep the law. And, though, the promise is void. The word void means, void means destroyed. Well, why is it destroyed? If I, if, 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 if I can keep the law... And I get the promise because of the law. Why is the promise destroyed? Anybody? You should know this. Because you can't keep the law. Nobody can keep the law. Thanks, Dad. If the truth is that those who are heirs to the promise are those who keep the law, then the promise is conditional and therefore destroyed. Why? Because no one keeps the law. No one meets the condition. Never forget Romans 3, 9, and 10. Both for Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. I'm not letting that go. Paul doesn't let it go. So if the promise goes to those who keep the law, the righteous, if those who keep the law are the righteous, then the promise is destroyed because no one is righteous. Paul continues in verse 15. Got to uh, really wake up here. This is going to get a little bit tough. Okay, For the law brings wrath. That's not tough. We know that. The law does not lead to the fulfillment of the promise. Seeking your righteousness through obedience to the law destroys the promise and leads to God's wrath. Because, again, no one keeps the law. No one is righteous. Again, back to Romans 1.18. Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And it's the law that makes our unrighteousness totally clear. Okay, this is where we got to hang on. That's what Paul is saying at the end of verse 15. He says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now that might sound a little strange at first. But remember, Paul's point is that the promise does not come through obedience to the law. He stated that the law brings wrath because no one keeps it. And this is reinforced by the fact that where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, 
Now, that does not mean where there is no law, there is no sin. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, already laid it out. We spend some time here. The unrighteousness, the sinfulness, the depravity, the fallenness of sinful Gentiles who never saw the law. So, the the law... Okay. However, that word transgression specifically means... So, so wait. So, uh, just because there's no law, before the law, there was still sin. However, that word transgression specifically means a violation of a revealed commandment. Okay? So, before the law came, yes, people, including Abraham, sinned. They disobeyed the known will of God. Adam and Eve, remember them? First sin. God did still give some commandments. God God still did tell people what to do. And when you didn't do what God told you, that was sin. They violated the known will of God and they violated their own conscience. They sinned before the law was given. But after the law came, sin increased. Because sin now includes all kinds of, of attitudes and actions that might have gone unnoticed because there was no specific command. For example, before the law was given, you might have looked longingly. You know, you might have been in your front yard and you might have been glancing over at your neighbor's stuff. You know, wow, that's some good stuff. I really wish I had my neighbor's stuff. You could have longingly desired to possess the things of your neighbor. You might have felt bad about it, but really no harm, no foul, right? It's just all internal. But then the law came. Exodus 20.17. It says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So after the law, every desire you have for your neighbor's stuff is a violation of God's commandment. And so, not only is sin exposed more clearly, it increases. So Paul's point is that the law, which brings wrath and increases sin, does not help you appropriate the promise. The law increases the transgression. God gave. It doesn't help you appropriate the promise. So so what does help you appropriate the promise? The promise is through faith. Back to verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be an heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Again, the promise given to Abraham was not conditioned on Abraham's ability to keep the law. The promise does not come through the law, but through righteousness, through the righteousness of faith. The promise to be an heir of the world is given to those who are righteous. And righteousness is given to those who have faith in the promises of God. This is true for Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Paul's point. Obedience to the law, get this, obedience to the law does not gain you righteousness, does not make you right before God, does not save you. First of all, because you can't do it. But faith does. And this is true of Abraham's offspring. Remember who Abraham's offspring are. We saw this last week. Abraham's offspring, his children, his descendants, his seed, both circumcised and uncircumcised, are those who have faith, like Abraham, in the promises of God. 
And that's what Paul says in Romans 4.16. After showing in verses 14 and 15 that the promise cannot depend on the law, the law destroys the promise, he says that is why it, the promise, depends on faith. Why? In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. The promise depends on, on faith so that it rests on. Uh, it's, it's our faith so it relies on the grace of God. We're, uh, Abraham's faith, our faith, is not in anyone or anything. Our faith is in the grace the unmerited favor, the unearned favor of God to fulfill His promises. God's grace is guaranteed to all His offspring, to all who put their faith in Him. Not only to the adherent to the law, not only to Jewish believers who have the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The promise is given to Abraham and all who share his faith all who call Him Father, to Jews and Gentiles who trust the promises of God. Promises that pointed to Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3.29, Paul says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We, like Abraham, receive the promise. We inherit the world by faith. And again, it's not our faith that saves us, that, that gives us this promise. It's what or, or really who we put our faith in. To be justified, to be counted righteous and receive the promise of faith, uh, the promise you must have faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham looked forward to the promises that pointed to Christ. And we look backward to the promises fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises given to Abraham and his offspring. Jesus is the heir of the word, world in the fullest sense. Jesus is the ruler of all things. Through Christ, all the nations will be blessed. Through Christ, Abraham's offspring, offspring become uh, Abraham's offspring. Wait, I'm missing something here. Hold on. That's right. Abraham's offspring become this multitude. They become the stars in heaven. They become the, uh, the sand in the seashore. Not, not because Abraham had so many descendants, because all who trust in Christ become the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the ruler of all things. Philippians 2.10 says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In Psalm 2.8, the Father says to the Son, Ask of me and I will give you the nations, your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. Jesus possesses all nations. All peoples are His. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26, Paul says to, of Christ, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus defeats all enemies. He reigns over all, including death. Jesus is the heir of all nations. All the world belongs to Him. What's clear from this is that the reason we are beneficiaries of this promise to be heirs of the world is because Jesus is the heir of the world and we belong to Him. Again, Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, if you've given your life to Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. 
So by believing in Christ, we become heirs with Abraham of the world. Because Christ is the heir of the world. Christ receives all things. So if you in faith, by God's grace, belong to Christ this morning, you've appropriated the promise given to Abraham. You are right now an heir of the world. Your future is exceedingly bright. Now we need to understand that being an heir means waiting for our inheritance. This is hard for us, right? This promise is is of the future. There are things that we receive when we come to Christ, specifically the Holy Spirit, a relationship with God, but we have to wait for our full inheritance. We have to wait for the world. So we need patience. And we need perspective. And we can grow in our patience and our perspective when we, uh, when we are helped to focus on our bright future through anticipating and ap- appreciating the promises. That's our third point, anticipating and appreciating the promise. We have this promise, and, and if you've, you're Christ's, then you've appropriated it, but now we need to dwell on it. Anticipate it, appreciate it. Our, our anticipation, appreciation for the promise is increased when we focus on what it will mean for us in the future. What does it mean that we are heirs of the world? I'm not sure we can fully understand this, but, but the Bible gives us at least a glimpse of what it means. And I think the best glimpse is found in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. The church in Corinth is experiencing some division. They're arguing about uh, minor things, it seems, about whose teaching is correct on this. And Paul, seeking to put their division into perspective, writes, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, whether, whether their teaching or the world or life or death or the present or the future, are all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Stop bickering about whose teaching is best. Get some perspective. All things are yours. You are heirs of all things. And notice again that the reason all things are yours is that you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. In Romans 8, 17, Paul speaking about the children of God says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Christ is the heir of God. Christ is that that first son. He receives all things. And we are His fellow heirs. That's what it means to be an heir of the world. Hebrews 1-2 says, But in these last days he's, he's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Christ owns it all. Everything is His. To do with whatever He pleases. And what He pleases praise the Lord, is to share all things with those who trust in Him. I mean, think about that. All things are Christ's, and He's going to share them with His... uh, Well, we'll get to that. He's going to share them with those who trust in Him. So practically, what it means to be an heir of the world is that right now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, all things are yours through faith. And all things will be yours in actuality in the age to come. That's, that's what Jesus meant when he, in Matthew 5, 5, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who are meek in this life, right now, those who humble themselves, those who admit their unrighteousness, those who repent and turn to God, 
who put their faith in the righteousness of God, who put their faith in Jesus Christ, will in the future inherit the earth. You're an heir of the world. And yes, you will inherit all things. But at the same time, all things belong to Christ. So how does this work out? All things are Christ's and all things are Abraham's and all things are yours and all things are, are mine. How does this, how does this work? I think, I think a good picture of this, a picture even that the Scripture gives us, is marriage. A husband and a wife have things. They own a home and they own cars and, and other things. I'm not saying they don't have anything uncommon, but there are things they own together. They don't own parts of these things, but all of them together. Marriage makes us co-owners of our stuff. And in a similar way, we are called the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ will co-own the world, will co-own all things with our bridegroom, Jesus. All things will be yours and mine because of the, we're the bride of Christ. And that's a promise that we can anticipate. That's, that's what we can look forward to. That's what we can see in our future and appreciate. That's a promise to think about and to meditate on. Especially when things are difficult. That's a promise that makes our future bright. But more than just anticipating and appreciating this promise, more than just waiting for our inheritance, I believe God wants us wants the knowledge of this truth, the knowledge of what lays before us, the knowledge that we will be heirs to all things to impact our lives right now. So let's think about applying the promise. How should we apply the truth that in the future we will be heirs to the world? First, I think we should rejoice in the promise. We should be a joyful people. We should be able to obey the commandment to rejoice always. In Romans 12.12, Paul says, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in the hope. And and that hope isn't wishful thinking. It's a surety that you are an heir of the world. Rejoice in the Lord who gives you, who chooses to share with you this vast inheritance. Rejoice in the temporal nature of this life and the eternal nature of your inheritance. Rejoice that all things belong to Him, but in His love and grace and mercy, He's chosen to give it all to those who put their faith in Him. There should be great joy in our lives as we, as we hope in the inter, eternal inheritance that awaits us. So first, rejoice in the promise. And second, be secure in the promise. Knowing that no matter what this life brings, you will inherit the world. Be strong. Be secure. Especially during times of suffering and affliction. I think this is uh, the thing that William Carey was talking about. This characterized his life. When we understand our future inheritance, uh, difficult passages, difficult things in life, and, and how the Scripture deals with them, difficult passages like Romans 5, 3, and 4 make sense. In, in Romans 5, 3, and 4, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. How can we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. In all of life's trouble, in all of the fear and pain and suffering we can experience, it's possible to rejoice. Both uh, knowing that God in this life is, is working through our suffering to give us hope 
in the life to come. God in this life has promised us and is moving or is drawing us toward an unbelievable inheritance. So the question becomes, what makes you secure? If it's the temporal things of this life, if it's your bank account, if it's your possessions, your job, your relationships, etc., if that's what you find your security in, then, then suffering in this life will be devastating. It will destroy your joy and security. When these things are taken away or, or curtailed or, or, or you lose one of them, suffering is great because that's where your security is. But if your security comes from the truth that Christ, in Christ, you're an heir of the world, suffering, temporal loss will be put into perspective and it will produce endurance and character and hope. So when, when, when life seems to be out of sync, it's not going the way you think it should, when things don't make sense, when there's pressure and it's, it's crushing you, remember the promise of God. Remember the bright future He has in store for you. Remember and be secure in the promise of all things. And then third, and this is where the, the rubber hits the road. Take risks because of the promise. Knowing that you have this great inheritance awaiting you. Knowing that you'll inherit all things in Christ. Get, get, get out of your comfort zone. Try something new in service to the Lord. Let your joy and your security make you radically sacrificial in this brief life. What have you got to lose? You'll inherit all things. You'll inherit the world. Live this life not for its temporal rewards, but risk for the eternal reward you've been promised. Take some new steps in ministry. Join a small group. Become better equipped to serve. Sign up to help. Serve at the Path of Life homeless shelter. Talk to Ashley or Anthony about working with our kids. Reach out to the people in your life who are in need. Share your faith with your friends and your family and your co-workers and your neighbors. What have you got to lose when all things are coming to you? Give sacrificially of your time and your talents. Give sacrificially of your finances. Get radical. I mean, this is why we can uh, risk all things. This is why we can be radically serve our Lord. Consider starting a, a new ministry at your work or school or your neighborhood. Sell your business. Quit your job. Look into, how can I go and make disciples at the, to the ends of the earth? In Romans 12.11, just before uh, Paul says, rejoice in hope, he writes, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Your eternal future is secure, people. So get off the couch. Allow God to revive your spirit and serve Him. Serve Him with all you have. Not to earn anything, which is the whole point we're talking about. You can't. But because you've already been given everything. That you're an heir of the world. Now, William Carey was certainly a risk taker, leaving the comfort of, of country and home and family to travel in, in a boat. Took a long time to this difficult land with many unknowns, many things to fear. 
And Carrie not only endured suffering, but looking to a bright future based on God's promises, he was able to accomplish great things in service to God. He said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. If you've appropriated the promise of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ, then with a sure hope you can expect great things from God uh, because you will inherit the world. God is giving you all things, therefore you can take risks. You can, you must attempt great things for God. Attempt great things in service to the one who gave his life that you might have an eternal inheritance. Rejoice. Be secure. Take risks because of the promise. Because you are an heir of the world. You know what? I'm going to pray for us. And then uh, the worship team is going to come and we're going to sing a final song. And then I'm going to, I'm going to come back up. And I'm just going to ask, and so I'm giving you a little time to think about this. I'm going to ask if anybody would like to share, uh, maybe uh, as you've been hearing God's Word, as you've, as, as you've heard the what lays before you, maybe there's something that you uh, God's been impressing you, you need to take a risk on. You need to step out. You need to move out of your comfort zone. You need to do something a little different than you have been. And I'm going to ask if there's anyone that would like to, to share that. So let me pray, and we're going to sing, and I'm, I'm going to... Uh, give you an opportunity to, to share. Lord God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for, for Jesus and this, that through Christ that we are heirs of all things. Lord, I pray, I pray for any here who have, have yet to put their trust in Him, who have yet to, uh, to appropriate the promise given to Abraham through Christ, Lord. I, I pray that you would draw them to yourself that they would even today trust in you, Lord. And I pray for us who have done this, Lord, who, who, who are receivers, who are, have appropriated and will receive this vast inheritance, Lord, that we would live as children of God, as children of the promise, as children who've been given all things, Lord, that we would live for you, that we would be secure in you, we would rejoice in you, and we would take risks for you, Lord. So, so I just pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.